in my research, I tried to map out these uh, considerations and also try to, uh, to talk about different ways, uh, as you say, and there is a variety of ways that in which uh, states disclose intelligence. And those ways, I mean, in terms of quantity and quality and the frequency of the disclosure, they all derive from what you want to achieve and what you're willing to risk to achieve it. This episode looks at questions pertaining to the public disclosure of intelligence. Why do states and agencies publicly disclose intelligence? How do they benefit from such practices? How is it done? And to what extent does society understand intelligence to begin with? Listen to our guest, Dr. Rimmer, to find out more. Welcome to another episode of the Diplomatic Academy, The Conversation. I'm your host, Petros Petrikos. This episode puzzles with the issues of intelligence disclosure and the question of should intelligence be publicly disclosed? We will be discussing under this theme in conversation with Dr. Alfred Reamer. And hello, Dr. Reamer. It's very kind of you to join us for this episode. Hi, Petros. I'm happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you. Just a few words on our guest. Dr. Alfred Reamer is an adjunct lecturer at the Department of International Relations at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem and the coordinator of the Israeli Forum for Intelligence Studies. He earned his PhD in October 2022 from the Hebrew University for his dissertation titled State's Public Intelligence Disclosure in International Relations. He holds an MA in Diplomacy and Security and a BA in Middle Eastern Studies, both from Tel Aviv University. He has published in contemporary security policy and has written commentaries for War on the Rocks and the Institute for National Security Studies. So um, you're a newly minted PhD uh, holder, which is fantastic. And uh, this gives me the opportunity to ask for you to give us a quick overview of what your work has uh, recently concentrated on and what kind of research puzzles you're mostly interested in. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so uh, thank you again. So I study in my recently approved dissertation, I study states public use of intelligence as a tool of foreign policy. I started writing it around 2017, 2018, when I actually encountered this uh, peculiar phenomenon in Israel. And as a former intelligence uh, officer, it was especially puzzling to see such an abundance of publicly shared information. You could see back then a lot of information on secret military capabilities, on uh, secret um, covert operations, the acknowledgement of secret operations, and also the release of, of intelligence information and assessments. And when Netanyahu, if you can recall, uh, revealed what came to be known as the Iranian nuclear archive in 2018. Already at that point, I realized that what's especially interesting is the disclosure of, of intelligence. It's puzzling, it's counterintuitive, and, and that was uh, what attracted my, my, my attention. But as I started reading about it, I discovered uh, very quickly that much scholarly attention was given to publicization of intelligence as politicization of intelligence. So basically taking this uh, fundamentally critical, skeptical view of this practice, especially 
in light of the uh, of the 2003 farce uh, in the run-up to the invasion of Iraq. Uh, if you remember when American and British intelligence agencies, governments disclosed, well, practically distorted, dubious information on Iraq's uh, WMD program and ambitions. And I was, I was interested in intelligence disclosure for strategic purposes, not just to influence domestic audiences, but also to influence uh, international actors, mainly international actors. My dissertation was actually uh, comprised of uh, three focus studies. I started with the reasons why do we see states using more and more resorting to this practice of publicizing intelligence. Then I was specifically interested in the use of intelligence um, as a tool of coercion. So along with my uh, supervisor, Dr. Daniel Sobelman, we conceptualized the use of intelligence as a, as a coercive uh, measure. And lastly, I, was, uh, I had another study that asked how it affects uh, society and how it is perceived by, by domestic audiences. So this is a brief overview of the dissertation. Well, that's very good to hear. And it's good to know that you also have a related background that, you know, where you can reflect and see how these processes that you referred to have actually, you know, unraveled. And which brings me to my first question on the importance of intelligence disclosure in the related practices for national security. How would you uh, say that this practice, you know, intelligence disclosure, relates to, to the wider society and uh, what actually makes it important in your view? That's a very good question. I think that the campaign, the Western, this high profile public campaign in the run up to the Russian invasion of Ukraine back in uh, February of this year is a case in point. And it's actually a milestone, I believe in the history of intelligence disclosures because it epitomizes, uh, epitomizes the relevance um, to international security and also um, to other, uh, it has, of course, systemic influences. So if you, if you recall, the, the, the West publicized intelligence on, uh, like, preemptive, preemptively publicized intelligence on Putin's um, intentions and planning and some of his operations. This, of course, was not, uh, it did not achieve uh, everything the West perhaps uh, hoped for, namely to to prevent the war, but it did effectively, I think, countered uh, Russian disinformation. It helped the West build a coherent meta narrative of who is the aggressor and who is the victim in this story, which of course the Russians try and tried and continue to try to obfuscate uh, that. Um, and this, of course, helped the West to quickly uh, unify against uh, against Russia. And also on the on perhaps uh, lesser importance, but indeed uh, indeed uh, valuable, is that it also helped uh, foil some subversion uh, operations. Uh, for example, this false flag operation that Russia intended to. Uh, to carry out in in eastern Ukraine as a pretext for for the invasion. Um, well, this is also 
also important. So, so I think this goes to show um, the importance and the, the effectiveness of this uh, particular practice, especially in this day and age where much of the warfare um, is in the information environment, in the media. Um, so it really helped shape the, the strategic and operational environment, but also the information environment. Um, so, so I think that this is the first, uh, the first point. And, and you were asking also about society. So if we look again at this, this particular case, um, I was referring before to the 2003 intelligence uh, disclosures uh, that preceded the invasion of Iraq. And this created a, a trust. I mean, there was a complete uh, crisis between um, uh, trust crisis between uh, between citizens, you know, American citizens, British citizens, and their intelligence uh, agencies and, and governments. And now, this perhaps the fact that the intelligence here in 2022 was was accurate and was timely, perhaps. Uh, allows them to rehabilitate this trust. But of course, there are still uh, this temptation and these opportunities for, again, distorting intelligence and politicizing um, intelligence. Uh, it's the name of the game as well, right? I mean, how you utilize intelligence in this way as a tool or also obviously to extract information. And as you've said, this is the uh, information and access to information is a major way of dealing with the modern crisis yeah. and i i think i can think of another example i guess how other countries do uh, this uh, disclosure of intelligence publicly uh estonia uh, the case study that i'm studying for my phd mm -hmm. their foreign their foreign intelligence service does that as well they have annual reports which are very interesting and uh you know the, in the case of estonia sometimes they don't really care what kind of uh, outcome their disclosure will have for example it actually created a diplomatic episode with the chinese ambassador uh, in estonia after they uh, disclosed certain uh, strategies uh, which were unfavorable to china which was also interesting to note but at the end of the day it's uh, it also depends on i would say on the strategic culture and the identity of the the ones you know disclosing intelligence there's always a purpose behind it as, uh, as we've seen yeah. and uh, given these examples that we've uh, highlighted i'd like you to see if we can uh, situate this process uh, if you like within uh, history if you have any notable examples in history where the public disclosure of intelligence as, is emphasized yeah sure and and i'm guessing that your uh, the, the example that you gave is a quite a recent example right yeah it is um, it's from recent years yeah so so it, it goes to show that really in in recent years this has become a very ubiquitous uh, way of conducting international affairs but it's not unprecedented in history indeed there were some uh, notable uh, intelligence disclosures that we can uh, uh, recollect i think that the um, that the earliest and perhaps uh, one of the well-known examples is the Timmerman telegram. Um, it was a telegram that uh, that, that was um, intercepted between the German foreign ministry and the German embassy in Mexico. 
uh, during the First World War. Um, and it offered, uh, it, it, it requested, the German foreign minister requested the embassy there to propose, uh, to propose an alliance to the Mexican uh, government against the United States. So if Mexico invaded the U.S., Germany will, will support it. And the British, it was the early days of, of communication and also of, of, of intercepting and deciphering uh, secret communications. So the British were able to, to, um, to intercept it and they decided they will share it with, uh, with the US administration. And of course they had a great interest in that, in luring the Americans uh, in, so to speak, um, to join the war and to help them uh, tip the scales. Uh, so, uh, and then, so they secretly shared it with the Americans and then the Americans decided to go public with it. President Wilson decided to go public in a way of persuading uh, Congress and of course uh, US citizens that, um, that there is a, a reason to join this, this war. And of course there are other examples, the Cuban Missile Crisis. And there is also perhaps a, uh, less known uh, example, an Israeli example, from the Six-Day War. Um, on the third day of the Six-Day War, there was, a, there was a telephone call between uh, Egyptian President Gamal Abdel Nasser and Jordanian King Hussein. Um, and Nasser, at that time already, he knew that there was this uh, massive uh, Israeli air raid on his air bases. Uh, he didn't share this with King Hussein, and he, but he did uh, try to convince him into fabricating news that, uh, that the US and the UK have participated uh, in the Israeli raid, which was of course uh, not true. It was completely uh, done by Israel. But uh, so Israeli uh, communication, signal communication unit intercepted this call and decided that it's important to, to share it with the world, um, this, this lie. Um, indeed, it was, it was then reported, this lie was, was repeated in, the, in Arab uh, radio stations that morning. And Israel decided to to disclose this uh, to disclose this telephone conversation because it feared that it will uh, it will make the USSR uh, intervene in the in the war something which Israel of course feared. So it does have uh, historical precedence this this practice of publicizing intelligence, but it's indeed uh, increasing and proliferating in recent years. Given these examples and how we've seen this, uh, you know, how things have changed in recent years, uh, in what ways do you think that states, well, or have you seen in practice, how, how do states practically disclose intelligence to the public? And uh, behind, if you could highlight also some key factors for, you know, influencing mm -hmm. the disclosure of such information, like what's, uh, if there's a universal thing out there that prompts states to actually go out there and disclose intelligence. Yeah. So, so in my in my research, I try to uh, to map out these uh, considerations and also try to, uh, to talk about different ways, uh, as you say. And there is a variety of ways that in which uh, states disclose intelligence. Um, and those ways, I mean, in terms of 
quantity and quality and the frequency of the disclosure, they all derive from what you want to achieve and what you're willing to risk to, to achieve it. Um, and, and this is basically this disclosure dilemma that uh, Carnegie and Carson uh, also refer to, um, which basically says that the more you disclose, the greater the political and the military impact on the one hand, but also the, the greater the political backlash might be and the operational costs. Um, so when we, when, when a state decides to, to disclose intelligence, I think that the first consideration, and this is of course not surprising, would be the risk to intelligence assets. Um, so on the one hand, there are of course um, open source intelligence um, and satellite images that are perhaps uh, cheaper, more dispensable uh, ways of gathering information that states will be perhaps more willing uh, to share publicly. And on the other end of the spectrum, we have the more uh, valuable um, intelligence sources that it takes a lot of time and resources and money to develop. And this is, of course, uh, human and signal intelligence. Um, and when we're talking about uh, human intelligence, of course, uh, at the end of the day, if you publicize information that was gleaned um, using uh, using spies and, and agents, um, you will be risking uh, lives, so human life. So, so this is of course uh, a serious one, serious consideration, and perhaps the main reason why, uh, in many cases, states decide not to disclose intelligence. So, uh, however, uh, I think that in uh, that today. Um, with the abundance of information that is out there that can you that you can uh, garner from from all kinds of uh, open sources which are also available you know commercially to to and citizens themselves collecting intelligence um, states perhaps have this ability to you know if you tap into Stepping into decision making and secret operations and underground projects, secret projects, of course, requires intimate intelligence, um, the kind that only mostly states have. But the fact that you have such an abundance of information that is uh, available out there, I think that states sometimes build on um, on perhaps intimate, more valuable intelligence. Um, and use the kinds of uh, you know intel uh, satellite images, etc., to corroborate their claims. So they don't reveal the valuable information, but they um, but they reveal uh, but they use perhaps the cheaper types of, of intelligence to to corroborate their their claims and make them and make them public. The second the second consideration is how you're revealing it. Are you doing a partial revelation or full revelation of what you have? Um, is it a one-time uh, disclosure or a repetitive disclosure? And here, of course, if you, if you reveal the full, your full knowledge, everything, all the evidence, the incriminating information you have, 
on another actor, it makes a more compelling case. Um, but it's also costly and escalatory, and you also exhaust your, uh, your coercive leverage over this actor quite quickly. Um, when you do it, a full disclosure in a one-time uh, incident. But on the other hand, if you do a partial uh, disclosure, it might not be compelling, but it's of course uh, less costly and it's more calculated. Um, you can reveal something and wait and see how the how your opponent reacts. And of course, you can retain your leverage over this this opponent and basically extort it. Mm. Yeah, and I perhaps. One one last uh, one last consideration. Then I will give uh, an example. Um, so so actually, uh, an example for that would be I think the the Turkish case, um, Turkish intelligence revelations on Khashoggi's murder, the uh, the assassination um, directed by the Saudis of this uh, dissident and. I think it was also a Washington Post journalist in the consulate in Istanbul in 2018. The Turks have had uh, intimate information on how it was perpetrated, who uh, who asked for it, how it was done, um, but they revealed it incrementally. They didn't reveal everything they know, and uh, and I think. It's, uh, it's important to note here that to this day, they didn't reveal the actual uh, tape. They said that they have this tape of the assassination itself. They didn't reveal it until uh, until today because I think they didn't want to burn their bridges with the US and uh, Saudi Arabia. And uh, But they did reveal some incriminating information encircling this smoking gun, so-called. Um, and they did it gradually. And uh, yeah, yeah. So, so, so the third consideration is how associated you want to be with the disclosure. Um, on one end, there is deniability that allows you to, uh, you know, you can reveal, states can reveal information using an off the record uh, conversation with reporters uh, using perhaps foreign media outlets. I mean, the first uh, revelations on Khashoggi were in the New York Times, um, and it was an anonymous source within the Turkish government. And on the other hand, uh, there can be um, attributed uh, attributed disclosures, which are much more performative and, and much more credible. You put yourself as the as the coercer in this case, um, as the one revealing information, and it has a lot more uh, perhaps performative power before the audience. So I'll just give you one, one example of that, uh, very contemporary uh, example, which is the um, uh, last week, I think that was, um, there were reports in the Washington Post that, um, that a US ally um, reported to the United States that there is going to be an arms delivery from Iran to Russia um, of drones and cruise missiles, uh, et cetera. 
and I think that we we all know it was uh, it was I think it said that the source is well informed on Iranian uh, weapons industry. So I think that uh, we can make an educated guess that uh, the source was was Israel, but it didn't want to but it didn't want to attribute the disclosure uh, to itself because it's walking a fine line here between uh, not aggravating Russia on one hand and on the other hand putting itself uh, in the right uh, side of uh, of history and showing that it is uh, monitoring and providing uh, information and assisting the Ukrainians to defend against uh, Iranian weapons. So this is a way of perhaps about creating this balanced strategy. So you've, uh, it's interesting because you've referred to how in order to actually to engage in this practical disclosure of intelligence to the public, uh, states and agencies, ha uh, th what they do is they calculate, they assess the costs, whether this is a costly procedure, you've highlighted some examples as well, and we've seen with uh, Hashaji's case that uh, they, some revelations have been only partial. So I'd like to understand a bit more about this assessment, if you like, and how do they, you know, states, how do they assess to what extent, you know, disclosing intelligence publicly is effective or harmful to their interest? You've already, you know, said that they, they calculate to what extent it can be costly, but how, how what sort of uh, mechanisms would do you think they have in place? And is there a balance that usually agencies opt in for? Like, how do they classify what information might be classified or secret, and then it gets declassified and can be shared with the public, or, uh, or, or whether this is any communication with uh, the leadership of the country, like obviously it depends on each case. I mean, you can talk about the cases that you know, because I know, I understand that it's it differs from state to state. Yeah, that's a good question. First of all, I think that I think that states uh, resort use the publicly use intelligence as a last resort. I don't think that this is um, uh, the first course of action that that comes to mind. I think that if we're talking about a military issue, perhaps uh, you know a secret nuclear program or a secret WMD program, uh, like chemical or biological weapons, or uh, or I don't know something, some kind of a attack. Um, if they if they don't want to use force, and if they don't, if they are reluctant to use force, if they lack the political will. Um, and they fear that it might escalate uh, into war. And on the other hand, if they have tried uh, perhaps privately communicating the, the opponent and it didn't uh, work, work out eventually, and it wasn't impressed, only then I think they will, uh, they will, use, um, they will use intelligence publicly, hoping that it will uh, impress uh, their opponent, or perhaps also disrupt its uh, its plans. One of the cases I use in my in my research is uh, Israel's campaign against uh, Hezbollah's attempts to manufacture precision guided missiles in Lebanon, inside Lebanon, which is something Israel regarded as a quote uh, balance breaking weapon. Um, 
and and in this case, Israel knew usually, um, and you said we have to take uh, the strategic culture into into account here. Israel in normal cases would preemptively uh, disrupt this uh, this plan, but specifically in Lebanon and and uh, in, in front of uh, and, and confronted with Hezbollah, which is uh, quite a, a conventional threat uh, to Israel, it it didn't want to to operate and it didn't want to strike uh, within Lebanon and to uh, and to destroy its uh, its facilities where it manufactures those missiles. So what it did was to uh, incrementally, gradually disclose its intelligence on the whereabouts of Hezbollah's operations that are related to this project. Um, and this, we, we know that it kind of uh, interrupted Hezbollah um, and it had to, it was forced to move from one place to another and to lose uh, precious time here. But, but overall, it didn't, it didn't deter it from, uh, from pressing forward with this, um, with this, with this issue. Um, so I think that this is, uh, so as I said in the, in the beginning, it's a, it's, I think it's a last resort. It's not, it's not the ultimate, um, it's not a silver bullet, you know, um, the same, the same way it was, I think with, uh, with Russia, you know, they, they try to, to put this intelligence out to see how it affects the other side, perhaps to tip uh, the opponent out of, uh, out of its balance. Um, but it, but it, doesn't, it doesn't stop a resolve actor, a determined actor um, from pursuing with something it's, it considers uh, vital for its national interest. Is there a term, a specific term with the Russian example, like uh, <laughs> anything in regards to experimenting with disclosure of intelligence? Like, uh, is it is there a term for that specific practice? If there's a term for, for what? For publicizing intelligence and... In an experimental way to see how others react or that doesn't really exist. Ah, so, so I think this is this, uh, this uh, gradual approach. Uh, I think it's what... Uh... <laughs> Uh, what some, uh, I think Alexander George referred to as this uh, wait and see approach or the turning of the screw. You know, you do something uh, and you see how it, how it affects the, the opponent, whether it shapes its behavior or not. Um, of course, you can risk um, that your opponent will adapt uh, eventually to your disclosures, which is exactly what happened with, uh, with Hezbollah uh, in the case I just mentioned. Uh, eventually, they adapted and they understood that there is an immunity uh, there, that there is a space um, that it actually, that the fact that Israel is disclosing intelligence stands for its lack of, um, of determination to use force, its lack of will to, to use force. So they quickly understood there is, I think, an immunity there, uh, that they are immune uh, to some extent. So it's a nuisance, the fact that you find a new facility and then it's burned uh, publicly and then you have to find a new one. But eventually Israel will not, you know, uh, stop this uh, militarily. Um, so, hmm. yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, this makes me think of a couple of uh, 
well there, there's an example that I'd like to bring in mm-hmm. uh, especially when it comes to regulation regulation of intelligence but also regulating to some extent the actual agency it really depends again as I've said from uh, case to case but I can bring in the example of Cyprus which is another case that I'm studying uh, where in 2015 there was this scandal of the uh, which involved the intelligence agency and uh, basically the scandal was that there was a leak that revealed uh, that the agency was essentially spying on the citizens without anyone's consent and the issue was there was that the intelligence agency from the foundation from its foundation and the foundation of the republic it was never regulated there was never an official mechanism there there were unofficial procedures of course but nothing official nothing on paper as to how this whole agency is regulated who gets to join uh, and so on so from 2016 onwards the parliament passed uh, a law which uh, basically regulated the service and uh, it also changed its name Uh, the former head of the service back then resigned in 2015 after the scandal and uh, ever since you know every now and then we've had some debates on how information of this nature is regulated to what extent what, what sort of uh, good practices we should follow and so on in, in order to avoid you know any scandals as such and you know also when scandals happen uh, how do we justify it because you know very often uh, and another actually i have a quote to share that this was shared with me uh, by uh, an official in brussels who uh, has an intelligence background and where they said that intelligence is practically the act of uh, conducting illegal action with the backing of your state yeah. of, your, of your national authorities in order to uh, uphold national security yeah. Uh, yes so uh, given all this, you know, the scandals, you know, the fact that, you know, a scandal essentially means that you've done something illegal. Well, I'm putting it very bluntly here, but uh, do you think that we have, are there any specific good practices we could follow in order to properly regulate uh, the disclosure of intelligence, also the work of these of the agencies without, you know, restricting uh, their work? We, we still, you know, allowing them to operate uh, on the operational side, you know, conduct their work as they should be doing so. Yeah, yeah. Um, so what you're describing uh, in the Cyprus uh, in the Cyprus uh, context is also uh, quite uh, quite similar to the Israeli context in in some ways. Um, perhaps we didn't have these uh, these scandals, this type of uh, scandals. We did have some, uh, of course. Uh, you know, the use of uh, use of force by the by the intelligence agencies and their you know uh, so to speak uh, illegal uh, ways of, of extracting information but not uh, but not the type of uh, you know scandals that creates this uh, trust issue between the intelligence services and the and the and the domestic audience and the and the citizens uh, mm-hmm. basically but um, there are types of we can say perhaps abuses of, of this monopoly over information that I think do harm uh, uh, or hinder democratic values 
and, and, and good governance, because in Israel, indeed, um, intelligence is regarded sacred, especially everything that is related to national security. Um, and intelligence services and the governments have a monopoly over such uh, this type of information. And, and the information that does get out is, is mostly engineered and, and selective. Um, and it serves either these strategic uh, purposes that I just, uh, that I covered in my, in my research, but also some other, you know, parochial interests of the head of the intelligence organizations or, or the heads of, uh, or, you know, politicians, the prime minister, and et cetera. And I am really advocating, and also in some of the policy papers that I have written on this, for the periodical, uh, perhaps annual, biannual um, reports on intelligence uh, assessments relating to national security. Uh, the way it, it happens in the U.S. or in the U.K., you know, in the U.S., all the, I think, uh, from the 90s, all the chiefs of intelligence have to appear before Congress uh, once a year, I think, um, to discuss national security threats. Um, there is an open hearing, there is a secret e hearing, closed hearing, um, and in the U.K., they, they file uh, reports that are publicly released. And in Israel, this doesn't happen. This doesn't really happen. Um, and I think that one way of, of regulating it and balancing between those strategic selective uh, releases and, and on the other hand, um, sharing intelligence for the public good and in the service of the public's right to know is this way, is by doing it uh, like they do it uh, there to create this open discussion on intelligence um, assessments in national security. Hmm. Okay, we've um, you, you've you've covered a lot on the practical uh, application, but also you know the uh, the reasons behind why they, you know they you know they decided they 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 the the, the move up with this um, procedures when it comes to intelligence, when it comes to the agencies, when it comes to publicly disclosing intelligence. Uh, and this is, I guess, this final question that I want to ask is a bit more academic. But if you don't mind giving us, uh, uh, you know, an elaboration on what kind of tools or frameworks can we study intelligence as a, as a concept within security studies, uh, mostly and beyond? Uh, yeah. I first of all, what I tried to do in my uh, in my dissertation is to is to approach intelligence as a source and as a tool, perhaps of state power. Uh, there used to be this uh, this discussion. I think it's pretty outdated now. Uh, whether intelligence is a is a source of state power um, or not, or it's only you know serving uh, decision making. And I think that uh, well, perhaps I I know uh, where I stand on this uh, debate if it's still uh, if it's still alive. Um, and, and I think that especially in this hypermediatized age, uh, in this age of uh, gray zone uh, conflicts, um, of, of cyberspace uh, conflict, intelligence and 
especially public use of intelligence, is, is a way of projecting uh, power and influencing other actors uh, and being one step ahead of, of other actors, like in the case of Russian disinformation, for, for example. Um, and, and I think that this is perhaps the main prism. Um, but but another prism of, of studying intelligence, I think it's a is a is a cultural and sociological prism. Um, indeed, uh, intelligence is is pretty much to a large extent grounded grounded in uh, in in context and in national context. I mean, the way Israelis uh, or Cypriots or Americans do intelligence and the way their public relates to intelligence. Are are pretty much different. Um, um, the, for example, um, in Israel there is a lot of uh, you know uh, public deference and public trust in the intelligence agencies, um, and this allows the intelligence agencies to do all sorts of uh, things. Um, and, and I think that uh, basically taking this this prism is. Is very uh, is very helpful. Uh, I'm uh, I, the third uh, research that I conducted. What tried basically to see how how the public perceives this type of uh, usage of, of intelligence, this public employment of intelligence as a foreign policy tool. Um, and what I intend to do next is to uh, is to see also how it affected um, how this. Uh, growing inclination to publicize intelligence have shaped uh, has shaped um, the intelligence profession and the practice itself. Um, how intelligence professionals do intelligence uh, in an era where their output is is uh, more likely to be publicized and shared rather than uh, kept uh, secret and and concealed. So it's a more perhaps sociological, um, for example, you know, we are, uh, we're educated on, on this uh, secretive aura of intelligence people, intelligence personnel. Um, and now uh, much of their uh, conduct and estimates, for example, you know, this daily intelligence assessments uh, publicized by the British uh, Ministry of Defense, um, mm. Is is something that is open, uh, is is open for criticism as well. So it must, in my understanding, it must affect somehow how intelligence uh, professionals um, experience uh, themselves, their work, um, what they do. Uh, it must also affect their uh, relationships. So I'd be personally. More interested in the future to take this this prism, I think, of intelligence studies. Mm. Yeah, I, I I like this I like this approach. I mean, the sociological uh, take is something that I can also relate. Though I also like I think it could be a mixture because mm -hmm. you you've also referred to that the graying the, the prism of the graying of information of other practices cyber and so on which is a phrase that I also have seen several times when studying hybrid threats and they're linked to intelligence, obviously with information practices and so yeah. on. So I think to some extent it, it, it's useful to 
use a combination of uh, the two prisms that you referred to, but this sociological take has is, is something that's perhaps uh, that's perhaps um, well, I, personally, I think it's it's been more interesting in the sense that how the you know how it is perceived, how people react to this kind of uh, thing, and then as you've said, in in turn, how the profession itself is influenced and shaped. Yeah. Um, uh, thank you so much for your time, uh, and uh, I wish you all the best with your future research. And uh, well, given that it's very interesting, hopefully we can collaborate at some point. Definitely, yeah. Thank you very much again for having me and for giving me this opportunity to talk about my research and share insights.